Right, well, it's great to have you with us this evening. You'll need a copy of one of the handouts that the young men distributed a couple of minutes ago. It's entitled Praying for God's Judgment, Part 2. And we're looking today at the most infamous of the Psalms, Psalm 137. I mentioned this last week, I said we'd be looking at it. I think what we'll do is call it a halt at these two sessions on the, the Psalms of Imprecation. But we may come back to the themes that we're talking about here uh, in future because we'll be looking through the Psalms and we'll notice the, the, the theme of uh, praying for God's judgment elsewhere. But for now, we're going to pray and then I'll uh, remind you of where we got to and we'll jump into this Psalm and see what we discover. So let's pray together, shall we? Merciful and gracious God and Father, we're thankful to you for this time you've given us this evening. Thank you for the food that we've enjoyed, for the hands that prepared it. Thank you for your word, the Bible, and its uh, richness and all the twists and turns that it contains. Twists and turns that we hope to navigate a little this evening by your Spirit's help. Please would you help us and open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. Unexpected things perhaps, but nonetheless wonderful. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Psalm 137, let me read it. That will be enough to remind you of why it provokes some question marks. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, Doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So concludes the most infamous imprecatory psalm. And I want to explain tonight why it is a tremendous source of promise for all the nations of the world that Psalm 137 verse 9 and 8 should be in the Bible. Just to remind you of where we're not going, I began last week when we were talking about these uh, psalms of invocation, these psalms that um, invoke God's judgment against others that where we're not going is to ignore them, to regard them as sinful prayers with no place in the Bible, or to regard them as sinful prayers typical of that nasty Old Testament God who's all into wrath and vengeance and stuff. We're not going to regard them as 
sinful prayers that Christians can learn from, though it's true Christians can learn from them, it's not enough to describe them in that way, we're not going to describe them as righteous prayers, but those that can't be prayed today. You remember there's one school of thought that says these prayers are righteous prayers, but they're not for now. They were for Old Testament times, and they will be for the final judgment, but they're not for Christians today. That's wrong too. And we're not going to describe them only as righteous prayers that only Jesus can pray. They are righteous prayers. Jesus can pray them. But I sought to explain and to illustrate, with the help of Psalm 5, why they are righteous prayers that Jesus prays now and we can pray too. And that was last week. And so you remember I gave you these seven biblical perspectives on the imprecatory psalms. See, I'm trying to learn the language, imprecatory. Imagine what it's like being a pastor for a long time and saying imprecatory. It's not a word that you say every week as a pastor, in truth, but then having to learn imprecatory, but I'm getting there. Seven biblical perspectives on these psalms. Deliverance, the Lord rescues the oppressed by judging their enemies, and it's only people who are naively disconnected from the brutal realities of life in most of the world for most of human history who forget that Many, many, many peoples have been oppressed and they need the Lord to act in judgment against those who are oppressing them. Imprecations is how they pray for that deliverance. Second, those who pray must be righteous, not perfectly sinlessly righteous, but at least innocent of the sins being identified. And that's a challenging thing to pray when you get to some of the imprecatory psalms. Third, mercy Because our righteousness is not perfect, we're still guilty. And it's not like we hold ourselves above everybody else and say, I thank thee, O Lord, that I'm not like other men. Please smash them into bits because I'm so wonderful. We still depend on the Lord's mercy. Fourth, God-centeredness or theocentricity. The enemies against whom we pray are in the first instance enemies of God. And I mentioned Psalm 139. The last quarter of that psalm is a series of imprecations. And there it's... um, Do I not hate those who hate you, O God? It's the enemies of the Lord in the first instance whom the psalmist teaches us to pray against. In praying for them, fifthly, we might pray that they would be spared or better still, saved. There's more than one way to die. You can die physically under the Lord's judgment. You can die to your sins and live to righteousness. And we might pray that. Sixth, if those who are prayed about in the imprecatory psalms do experience God's judgment. They experience only what they deserve. And you get this sense of uh, proportion in the psalms. Um, The law of retribution is an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Not four eyes, including two from your children, for an eye, which is how vengeance worked in much of the ancient world and still works today. And then seventh... And importantly, these are prayers. So they are an alternative to taking matters into our own hands. And even in Psalm 140, 146, no, 149, I think, where there is some indication of, it looks like a narrative description of the people singing the psalm acting as the agents of God's judgment. I'm not altogether sure that's what's happening. I think it's supposed to be in parallel with their singing. It's the the songs that we sing 
that call our Lord to go into battle for us. Uh, incidentally, I mentioned my friend Stephen Jenkins, who's a, a fine scholar um, and who wrote a big fat PhD thesis on which I've drawn for this talk and last week's. I managed to persuade him to come on the All Saints podcast, and so uh, I'm looking forward to that. And anything I've got wrong, I'm sure he'll set me right. He's a very sharp guy, and um, so look out for that if you're a podcast kind of person. So that's where we got to last time. And we looked at Psalm 5, and Psalm 5 you saw exemplified most, if not all, of those um, different perspectives. Now I want to introduce two more perspectives, two more perspectives. Things we've got to bear in mind when we're reading the Psalms that we normally forget. First, their context within the whole Bible, and second, their context within the book of Psalms. The context within the whole Bible is really important because the Psalms make reference to historical events, in some cases to prophecies or to people who appear elsewhere in the Bible. And one of the things we're going to notice tonight is that the historical context of Psalm 137 is really important for understanding what's going on. It ties into the, the rest of the fabric of Scripture. And I think there's a challenge here for us, because frankly, the way that we read Psalms is a little bit like the way we read those fridge magnet Bible verses sometimes. You sort of pluck them out of context and sort of stick them on the wall in nice little framed or wood-carved, you know, as for me in my house, I will serve the Lord style, that's Joshua 24, um, uh, style little aphorisms, whereas in fact, they are the songs of the people of Israel, and they require us to understand and be familiar with the rest of the Bible. I'll show you what I mean by that with the example of Psalm 137, which really, if you get that, in this case, totally transforms what it means, or what it, it, it helps you to see what it means, and it makes you realize that your instinct was really quite wrong when you first read it. So context within the whole Bible. And then secondly, the context within the book of Psalms. The Psalms is 150 songs or praises or poems, but they are grouped together in really, really intricate ways. And the the way that they're grouped and the way that the different sub-collections are shaped is also really important. And if you flip over the page, which you will in a couple of minutes, I hope, don't do it yet. Well, you can if you want, but you'll see I've got this kind of complex-looking diagram And I'm going to try and show you how the structure of the whole of the book of Psalms allows us to see Psalm 137 in a slightly different context and to see what it means. So those are the two things we're going to do tonight. Context of the whole Bible and the context within the book of Psalms. And we'll shine some light on this really quite terrifying and, for some Christians, somewhat embarrassing imprecation. I I think there is a tendency to be embarrassed by this psalm and others like it. I want to dispel that embarrassment by showing you what it actually means. To do that, we need to begin briefly with the story of Israel's exile. And you notice that we have to begin with the story of Israel's exile because of Psalm 137 verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Well, what on earth is that about? Um, Bullet points on the right-hand side of the page. This tells us a huge amount about what was going on when this psalm was written. What had happened was that, and you know this if you know your Old Testament history, but the the people of Israel, they settled in the land in the days of Joshua, about uh, 1400-ish BC. You've got 400 years of Joshua and then the judges. Then they get a king, King 
Saul and then King David. They had a couple of kings before King Saul. Well, one before, one after. Um, uh, people normally forget about Abimelech and Ishbosheth, but they were both kings of Israel. So Abimelech, Ishbosheth, Saul. Uh, sorry, Abimelech, Saul, Ishbosheth, David. Solomon, the high point of Israel's history, about 950 BC. And then after the reign of King Saul, the kingdom divided into two. You remember this? Two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah, ten tribes in the north, um, the other ten tribes, uh, under Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam in the south. And these two nations basically sort of split apart for most of the rest of the next millennium. Uh, the northern kingdom went bad, fastest. And in 722 BC, the Lord sent the Assyrian army um, to conquer the land and exile its people. And basically, they never returned, certainly not en masse, to the land. Um, they did kind of return in dribs and drabs. But um, by then, they had intermarried with the nations around them that they'd been exiled to. And they intermarried with the nations that filled the vacuum that was left behind when they'd gone. And so they were known as the Samaritans, because Samaria in the north, and you remember the attitude of the Judean elites to the Samaritans in Jesus' day, right? This is the reason why. Because they were regarded as compromising, not true-blood Jews, who had mingled with the other nations and corrupted their faith and lived up in the north, up in Galilee, etc., the southern kingdom of Israel lasted a little bit longer, but not much longer. In 598 or 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, as in by the waters of, where we sat down and wept, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the nation and carted off uh, most of the elite and quite a lot of the people, installed his own puppet king called Zedekiah, and basically said, you've got to be, watch your P's and Q's, young man, and, and then we'll sort of let you stay here. And Zedekiah rebelled against king of Babylon 10 or 11 years later. Actually, it's 11 years later. It's 587 BC. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came in again and absolutely flattened everything. Um, If you read um, 2 Kings 25, um, verse 7, you get an idea of what the king of Babylon was like. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Now, Zedekiah was no kind of nice chap or anything, but that's an indication of the kind of barbarism and brutality that Babylon's armies displayed. There are contemporary uh, carvings uh, and records of Uh, The Assyrian army, which predated the the Babylonians by a few years, but they adopted similar practices, um, inserting four or five-inch metal hooks through the cheeks of their captives and stringing them together and marching them across the desert to Assyria. This is the kind of... uh, So when Isaiah mentions, I'll put a fish hook in your nose, that's a judgment against the king of Assyria... That's what he's talking about. An eye for an eye, etc. Right? These were absolutely barbarous, brutal people. And that's where the people of Israel were when they were... Well, that's the time they were looking back to when they sang this psalm, Psalm 137. In fact, I'll show you later, Psalm 137 is, is written a little bit after that. 
but it's a retrospective. By the waters of Babylon, we sat and wept in the past. It's not we're sitting and weeping. It's in the, but that's what it refers to. Now, that's Babylon as they feature in Psalm 137. But you notice there's another nation that's mentioned there. Do you notice that in verse 7? It's not just Babylon in verses 8 and 9 that get uh, lined up for a mention. It's Edom in verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. What's going on here? Well, it seems that what was happening was that the Edomites, who were descended from the brother of Jacob. Remember Jacob and Esau? Esau is Edom. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, 12 sons, Israel. Well, Jacob's brother, Esau, Edom, grew up to be a nation as well. The, the brother of Israel. The closest kinsman of Israel. With whom Israel didn't have a great relationship throughout their history. And one of the worst and darkest moments, and really most unpleasant, nauseating moments, is the reaction of the people of Esau, Edom, when Israel was being invaded and exiled, the people of Judah in the south. It's hinted at here how they said, this is what the people of Edom said, to the invading army, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations, which being translated means, go on, smash them into bits, destroy them all. In fact, you get a hint of what it was like in the book of Obadiah. You didn't know we were going to the book of Obadiah this evening, did you? Obadiah is um, a one-chapter book that's immediately before Jonah and immediately after Amos. So if you just flick forward a little bit, sort of two-thirds of the way through the Bible, um, you've got um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, sorry, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. If you get anything beyond that, go left. If you've got any of those things, you're almost there. Go right a little bit. Obadiah is a prophecy against Edom. And what it does is to lay out what precisely it was that the Edomites did when their brothers were being invaded and exiled and their men were being put to the sword and their women violated and their children slain. What did the Edomites, the brothers of the Judahites, the Israelites in the south, what did they do? Well, verse 10. This is Obadiah. It doesn't have chapters, so Obadiah verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother, Jacob, you know, the guy that you should have stuck up for, the guy you should have been there for, allies with and looking after, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. What did you do? On the day that you stood aloof, you stood by and watched. On the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. And most appalling of all, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. 
Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Can you see what the people of Edom did and what they're being castigated for by the prophet Obadiah? They initially just watched and did nothing while strangers carried off the wealth of their brother Israelites. And then they gloated, and then they rejoiced, and boasted, and looted his wealth. And then they stood at the crossroads of the escape routes to capture anybody who was fleeing from the onrushing army of the Babylonians to hand them over to the invading army. Just think about that for a second. People flee, innocent women and children, fleeing from the battle. And you capture them and hand them over to people you know are going to stick a hook through their keep and drag them across the desert 300 miles to Babylon. Such was the conduct of the people of Edom. So what's going to happen because of this? Well, turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 13. Isaiah is prophesying before Israel's, Israel's exile. And in the first, um, well, after the first dozen chapters or so, chapters 13 all the way through to about 19 or 20, he issues a series of denunciations prophetically warning of judgment against various nations for their evil. And he speaks one against Babylon. Knowing what they're going to do, speaking in about 740 BC, he prophesies against them like this. Chapter 13, verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. And then he goes on and on and on. It goes on for the whole chapter. Pick it up at verse um, 13. I'll make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Notice that what's happening here then is the... um, It's not just people getting angry with each other. It's the Lord acting in judgment. Verse 15. Whoever is found will be thrust through and whoever is caught will fall by the sword, much as they did to the Israelites who are fleeing from the invading army. Verse 16, their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Which sounds remarkably like what Psalm 137 is talking about, doesn't it? Do you notice that? Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. In fact, Psalm 137, keep that open and just glance at Psalm 137, is talking about the same thing. What Isaiah is doing is prophesying, a day will come when a a nation rises up to deliver whoever Babylon is oppressing from the brutal and violent Babylonians. And the way they're going to do it is like this. Standard practice in ancient warfare. Brutal, barbaric, horrific, violent, nasty. Psalm 137 is talking about the same thing. Now, who is it going to be? Look at verse 17 of 
Isaiah 13. Behold, I'm stirring up the Medes against them. The Medes is another name for the Persians. The Persians or the Medes were the ones who basically came after Babylon, invaded Babylon and displaced them and let all their captives go back home to their homelands. Talk about that in a second. Behold, I'm stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold and so on. Their blows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. This is what Isaiah is prophesying. The Lord is going to raise up one wicked nation against another. It's what Habakkuk says. Um, in fact, it's what Habakkuk despairs at. You remember in the book of Habakkuk, he, he's, he's talking about how the law is paralyzed and injustice is everywhere. And it's because of the Babylonian armies. And um, the Lord says, don't worry, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Persians, that brutal and violent people who sweep across entire continents and take nations not their own. And Habakkuk's like, what? That's no answer. And the Lord says, yeah, I know it's not the answer, but it's how I deal with wicked nations. I raise up some other wicked nation against them. You don't play hardball with the Lord, you Babylonians. The Lord will play hardball with you and raise up the Medes, the Persians, which is what Isaiah sees he will do. In fact, if you turn forward in Isaiah to Isaiah chapter 45, Isaiah 45 verse 1, contains one of the most astonishing prophecies in the whole book of Isaiah. And that is really saying something. Um, when I read what it actually says, as opposed to what our Bibles um, kind of can't bring themselves to... Well, our Bibles are right, actually, on this occasion. But it's, if I say it... Well, I'll just read it, and then you'll know what I mean. But some, uh, Isaiah 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah, to Cyrus whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loosen the belts of kings. What happens if you loosen the belt of a king? Yeah, that's right. His trousers fall down. It looks really stupid. And he loses his capacity. The belt is like the place where he hangs his weapons and so on. So he's being dethroned. But notice, Cyrus is called the Messiah. I know it says anointed because Moshiach, the the word from which we get Messiah, and it's the, the equivalent of the Greek Christos, which means Christ. They both mean anointed one. The one who's anointed to be the king and the priest and the prophet. Cyrus is called the Messiah. Because he's going to be the one who sets Israel free. It's just like, welcome to the brutal reality of ancient Near Eastern military politics. Where the Babylonians carted off the Israelites into exile as agents of God's judgment against them. And then in due time, the Lord raised up the Medes, the Persians led by Cyrus, their king, as a messiah, a saviour, an anointed conqueror to deliver the people of Israel from their tyrant overlord, Babylonian captors. In fact, if you look a little bit more closely, one or two other places in the Bible, look at Ezra chapter 1, you notice that scripture talks a little more about Cyrus. In Ezra chapter 1, so... Samuel, 1 and 2, Kings, 1 and 2, Ezra. You'll find Ezra in no time. Oh, sorry, Chronicles, 1 and 2. Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, then Ezra. The book of Ezra 
describes what happened when King Cyrus conquered Babylon. He became king, yada, 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 installed in this nice big throne. In fact, he walked in through open gates. The Babylonians were away and our armies were in disarray. And there was almost no battle to fight initially. Um, but Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the, sing, the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And what you read in verses 2 and following can be read on a little cylinder about this long that's in the British Museum where my countrymen stole it and put it in there. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder, and it is a, a carved uh, cylinder, slightly fatter in the middle, slightly thinner at the ends, on which is written King Cyrus's new foreign policy. He basically wrote about five or ten of these things and sent them out to different corners of the empire that he just conquered. And his foreign policy was, instead of having all these conquered nations here causing trouble for us, we'll let them go back home and they can pay taxes to us. Lovely jubbly, we can make some money. And what Ezra has done is cut out and pasted in here the bit that's about the Judeans. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And it's fascinating because you see all this confusion. He's the God who's in Jerusalem. Yeah, he's the God who's everywhere, actually. But, you know, but not bad for a pagan king whom the Lord is using to allow his people to go home and rebuild. And so do you think, I mean, I put this in, question mark and the final bullet point do you say that king cyrus the persian king who conquered our babylonian captors for us do you think he's saved i mean he's the messiah that Isaiah prophesied about 200 years ago i don't know whether he's saved but I'll tell you what you might do you might pray the lord's blessing upon him which is precisely what Psalm 139 is. Just look at Psalm 139 again. Look what it actually says. Verse 8. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who... And then a description of what you did to us. This is a prayer of blessing. For King Cyrus. It's the Israelites looking back at their time in exile and praying that the Lord would bless Cyrus, king of Persia, the pagan king through whom God worked in his strange and unpredictable way to set us free so that we could go back home and rebuild. It's weird that we... I mean, obviously it's understandable. We see the dashes against a rock. It's actually a prayer for the Lord's blessing upon a pagan king in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. But it's more than that. I've got seven minutes. I have to talk a bit more quickly. Flip over the page. And we discover that this prayer of blessing is not just for Cyrus, king of Persia. 
I want to show you as quickly as I can how Psalm 137 fits within the whole book of Psalms. <laughs> Must be mad. All right, hold tight. Here goes. The Psalms have an introduction, Psalms 1 and 2, and then they're divided into five books. Hands up if you've ever noticed that. It says book 1, book 2, book 3, 4. Yeah, so you've all noticed that. And the books are noted down the left-hand side. Intro, Psalm 1 and 2. Book 1, Psalm 3 to 41. 2, 42 to 72. 3, 73 to 89. Book 4, Psalm 90 to 106. And then book 5, 107 to 150. Right, now, each of the books have different themes. You don't need to worry about numbers 1 to 3 just yet. You know about the intro, because we've already talked about that. Book 4 is all about praying for the return from exile. It pictures the people of God in exile and asks that the Lord will deliver them. How do we know that? Well, you just have to read them all, which we're not going to do now, don't worry. But just look at the beginning and the end. The first psalm in book four is the psalm of Moses, the prayer of Moses, the man of God. Who's the one who delivered the people from a previous exile? The slavery in Egypt is very similar to the slavery in Babylon. And at the beginning of book four is the prayer of Moses, the man of God, celebrating how the Lord has done it before. The Lord has set us free from the nations before. Maybe he could do it again. And this theme pops up again and again and again in book four until you get to the end of book four, which is Psalm 106. And the conclusion of Psalm 106 is verses 47 and 48. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from where? Among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. All the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. And that's praise the Lord, but it's how all the books of the Psalms end. But it's save us and gather us from the nations. So book four is, please, Lord, will you rescue us from the nations? Save us from the exile. Book five, then, is thanksgiving and praise because he has saved us from among the nations. You with me? You can see the, the, the difference in perspective. And so what I've done is... I've got book five, that blue box, and we're zooming in on it into this large blue box at the top right-hand corner of the page. Book five has three parts to it. Each of the three parts begins with a psalm that says, Hodu, in Hebrew, which means give thanks. Psalm 107, verse one. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Then Psalm 118, verse one. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Same at the end of Psalm 118, verse 29. Psalm 136, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You see, it's a give thanks at the beginning of each section. Then you've got a central section, Psalm 110, sorry, sorry, 106 to 110. Before you get to a final section in part one, which is 111 to 117, all about praise the Lord. Hallelujah, Psalms. And that pattern is repeated in part two of book five, where the praise the Lord psalm is 135. And it's repeated in part three of book five, where the praise the Lord section extends out again. And it's the famous praise the Lord bit, Psalm 146 to 150, which is the psalms that many of us know. They're full of praise the Lord. So here's how it goes. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Central section, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Because he's rescued us from exile. Repeat. Give thanks to the Lord for his good. Central section. Hallelujah. 
Praise the Lord. Part three, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Central section, hallelujah, praise the Lord. That's what book five of the Psalms is all about. Right, now we have to zoom in a bit more. Look at the green bit. That central section of part three of book five is really weird. If you look at the central section of part one, every single one of the Psalms is of David. The central section of part two is a bit different because it's Psalm 119, which is a big long psalm about the word of God, and then it's the Psalms of Ascents, which are all the ones about going up to the house of the Lord to worship. So that's obviously because you need to meditate on the word of God, Psalm 119, then go to worship God, Psalm 120 to 134, right at the centre of this final section. Because why else have you been redeemed from exile other than to feast on the word of God and worship in the temple of God, right? Right at the middle of that section. Then you come to the third part again, the central section. The first part was all of David. You're expecting the third part, the central section, to be all of David. And they all are apart from one. Guess which one? Psalm 137. It's the only one of the central section that is not of David. So it stands out like, what is this? And you zoom in on the green bit. They're nearly all of David, and I've numbered them across the bottom. 137, 8, 9, 40, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, just along the bottom there. Now, we can't really go through all these in detail, but you notice they're all of David apart from the first one, Psalm 137. And you get a sense of how to read Psalm 137. And here's the crucial thing. I got this, this is what Stephen Jenkins highlighted for me. You learn how to read 137 by reading 138 to 145. And particularly by reading the beginning and the end of those psalms. Just look with me at 138. Just look. We're almost done. Hang in there. Okay? Psalm 138. I will give thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. Now, that's really, really weird. Why are you going to sing praise before the gods, that is, the gods of the other nations? Oh, hold on a second. Maybe you're anticipating that those other nations will come and worship the Lord. And you're kind of sticking a finger up at their gods, rather like chopping the statue of Dagon down, or the statue of Dagon was chopped down by the Lord, wasn't he? I will bow down towards your holy temple. I will give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you've exalted above all things your name and your word. Verse 4. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Now, why is this important? What David is doing, David is doing, because this is of David. David is generalizing the message of Psalm 137 about Cyrus the Persian, to all the other kings. Psalm 137 is, Lord, please bless that one pagan king, Cyrus, who rescued us. Psalm 138 is like, what about all the other kings? Lord, please bless them too. All the kings of the earth shall give thanks to your name, O Lord. Psalm 138. Look at Psalm 145. How could you improve on all the kings of the earth giving thanks to the Lord and praising him? 
well, you just wouldn't limit yourself to kings. And Psalm 145 highlights how all things and all people are invited and called to honour the living God. It starts with verse 1, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and praise your name forever and ever. By the time you get two-thirds of the way through, you have this long section from verse 14 to the end where every verse contains the word all, most of them twice. The Lord upholds all who are falling. The Lord raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food. Verse 16, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. You see, there are still some Babylonians and still some Edomites. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever and ever. That takes you to the end of the central section of the third part of the fifth book. All you've got left to do now is praise the Lord. So let's do that five times, Psalm 146 to 150. So you see what's happening. This central section of part three of book five of the Psalms is telling us how to read the odd psalm out. The odd psalm out is a prayer of blessing for Cyrus the Persian who rescued us from our unrepentant enemies. Lord, don't restrict your mercy to him. May all the kings of the earth worship you. May all flesh bow down before you and worship you. Blessed shall he be. Psalm 137. It is the best news in the world that all the kings of the nations are invited and commanded and it's anticipated that many of them will come and all flesh will one day worship the living God. We should sing, Mr. Whittlesey. Let me lead us in prayer and then we'll clear up and get ready to sing. Merciful Father, we're thankful to you for the depth and uh, complexity of your word, the Bible. We confess that we are humbled at times by what we miss and then by what you show us. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would have mercy on the kings of the earth. For we see many who are rebellious against you. We see many Babylons and Edoms. And we long to see more Medes and Persians. Medes and Persians, that is, in being used by you to fulfill your good purposes. And even, we pray, bowing the knee before you. We pray you'd have mercy upon them and bring this about in your way and in your time. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mr. Whittlesey and Pastor Shaw, tell us what we should do. Usual thing, tidy the tables. Very good.